If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 3rd, 2022 New Year edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Michael Taylor Gray in Los Angeles. On this outing of our show, we greet our future with a journey into our past. At one time, one of IMRU's most popular features was the audio essay, a.k.a. Personal Reflection. We do fewer of these stories these days, but plan on returning to the format in a big way in 2022. So we're kicking off the new year with a show packed with them. So sit back and enjoy. First, longtime IMRU host, Wenzel Jones, takes a trip straight to Vegas. I was mistaken for a heterosexual once. A friend of mine, Jana, was getting married in Las Vegas. As she married later in life and had little family to speak of, it was to be a merry affair at a pirate-themed hotel with Janet's vast circle of friends discharging most of the duties. I was assuming the role of the father of the bride, since the actual one was dead, and my friend Patty, a woman of voluptuous proportions, was stepping in as maid of honor, or matron of honor, or whatever you call the woman with two marriages under her belt who had not yet leapt into her third. Patty and I were traveling on a Southwest Companion ticket, so we had to travel together. As Patty's 20th high school reunion was on the night of Janet's marriage, I had to leave with her soon after the wedding ceremony, and there was no time to get out of our wedding togs, which is how we came to be standing in McCarran Airport. All confirmed passengers should now be boarding at gate number D. I in my natty rented charcoal gray tux, Patty in a smart, albeit restrictive, pink suit, the jacket of which clearly illustrated the expression 10 pounds of bologna in a six-pound bag. Mind you, the girls had already escaped their confinement once that day, just before the ceremony, in fact, so they were being restrained by the merest of safety pins. This is not a salient point, I just want to draw you the picture here. It was my first time traveling in formal wear, and I thought it was just the novelty of seeing a bow tie in steerage that was causing strangers to appear so interested in us. All too soon, I had the uncomfortable realization that the people in our waiting area were beginning to assume that we were newlyweds. Worse, Patty, who was no stranger to the ways of matrimony, was actively encouraging this fraud. By the time this was all clear to me, there was nothing I could do short of announcing, 
ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but my dear friend, who is otherwise a lovely woman, has only the most casual acquaintance with honesty. So I smiled wanly while Patty explained to inquisitive travelers that our wedding bands were away being sized. A bit of chicanery so clumsy that for a moment I felt sorry for Patty for leaping into the waters of deceit when it was clear her skills in that area were so underdeveloped. This apparently mattered to no one. We couldn't pose for enough photographs or receive enough warm wishes, and since our flight was delayed, and more than once, there was plenty of time for both. Mind you, with the flight being delayed, we now had the element of Patty being on her cell phone, repeatedly calling the classmate awaiting her in Long Beach to let her know that she was running late and that said classmate should go ahead to the reunion and Patty would get there when she got there. These conversations were not delivered in quiet tones, or code, or even pig Latin, but people still persisted in believing that we had joined the ranks of the wed. For my part, I had run out of patience and settled into an attitude of resigned scandalization at Patty's impertinence. One would have thought that the most casual observer would surmise, if nothing else, that Patty had married a peevish man and a bad traveler and that the marriage was doomed. But this was not the case at all. It clearly was not what they wanted to see. Or perhaps this is what new grooms all look like. Or, most likely, nobody pays a bit of attention to a groom anyway. When the time finally came to board, the high number on our southwest boarding pass was waved away. Step to the front of the line, happy newlyweds. And so it went through the flight. There was, of course, the announcement over the intercom that we have a new couple aboard, followed by the sort of alcohol-fueled applause indigenous to Vegas flights. The adorably boyish flight attendant, smartly attired in his khaki shorts and doing a fine job of filling out his polo shirt, kept running free drinks to us. It seemed impolitic to ask his number, considering, but I was rather curious as to just how far he'd be willing to extend his goodwill. I thought I had an ally in the older woman sitting directly across from us. She had been privy to all of Patty's phone conversations, and it was clearly having none of it. I felt so bad at being party to such a transparent hoax, I couldn't even meet the woman's eyes. But after landing, as we got up to leave the plane, she grudgingly offered her congratulations and hopes for a glorious future. So Patty went off to her reunion, and I went home to my boyfriend. But for that period of three hours, I felt what it was like to be accepted as one who was playing the game and following the rules. And my, what a big, warm, hearty handshake that was. Wenzel's frequent co-host, Abby Dees, is often annoyed that when she's with her female partner, someone wonders aloud, who's the man? It happened again. Some friends asked my partner Tracy and me, is one of you like more the man in the relationship? This question doesn't upset me, but it's still weird. After all, I've always thought Tracy and I were pretty much on the same spot on the gender continuum. But people keep asking, is one of you the man? Here's what prompted it this time. I put pictures up on Facebook of Tracy and me at a she-she fundraiser. Tracy wore a print dress and I wore black cigarette pants and a tailored blouse. We both wore makeup and heels, though if we're nitpicking, mine were just kitten heels. Now there are any number of reasons why I wasn't wearing a dress, beyond the basic fact that my outfit totally rocked. Among those reasons, I'm deathly white, and legs pantyhose in suntan shade went out of style, if they ever were in style, in the 80s. Another reason is that I have a nasty scar on my shin from walking into a broken flower pot. And 
dresses give my rather cylindrical body a chintz-draped pink column look. Not included in this list is anything having to do with gender roles. But in fairness to my friends, they didn't ask just because of that one picture. They'd noticed that most of the time, when they see Tracy, she's in makeup and clothes straight from the dry cleaners. I'm usually in jeans. Maybe lipstick and sunblock. Maybe. So it's not so off the wall for them to wonder if there's something more to this than fashion. What's funny, though, is that they are as much flouters of traditional roles as we are, which is one of the things we love about them. In other words, they're a typical modern straight couple, two generations out from mandatory boy-girl conformity. What I get from this is a reminder of just how deeply worn the gender expectation grooves still are, even if real life has much more room for variety. Like, to me, more obvious questions about Tracy's and my personal style choices might be, Abby, are you a lazy, ADD-addled slug in the morning? Or, Abby, do you just not accept the fact that you're a grown-up now and should probably dress like one? I would have to answer yes to both those questions. But for the sake of argument, let's say that there is something to this question of Tracy's and my gender roles. After all, we're not any more immune to those expectations than my friends are. It's the model we all grew up with in some way or another about how couples are expected to interact. Is one of us more like a typical man or woman than the other? Honestly, I'd have to say yes. It looks like this. When it comes to heaving bags of fertilizer to the backyard and grumbling afterwards about how she shouldn't have done that to her back, Tracy's the man. When it comes to wiring a stereo or fixing the computer, I'm the man, and Tracy's the woman making endless suggestions over my shoulder that I try to ignore. When it comes to making charts of finances and household numbers, Tracy's the man, and I'm definitely the ditzy platinum blonde. But when it comes to picking up old socks and underpants from the floor and wondering if Tracy even notices, oh, I am so the woman. However, when it comes to being patient with a curling iron and mascara, Tracy's the total woman, and I'm the man, forever striving to bring my morning grooming ritual in under two minutes. And when it comes to emotional communication, Tracy's the monosyllabic man, and I'm the harumphing woman. But Tracy's still got those big, delicate, girly feelings. Does that answer the question? This is Abby Dees. And this commentary was based on my syndicated column, Thinking Out Loud, distributed by Q Syndicate. Arnold Pomerantz was an elderly listener who shared several memories with us, including one about taking a cruise with a subway dreamboat. When I attended City College way back when, I joined a fraternity. Can you imagine? Here I was, a closeted gay man, joining a fraternity of exclusively straight men, but they were lively and social. And I felt that I was going through this phase. You know, it would, it would certainly pass. You know, that's all I had to meet is a lot of women and a lot of straight guys. And I would give my mama what she wanted, that house in the suburbs, you know, two and three quarter kids, a white picket fence. And because I was a good dancer, I got a reputation in the fraternity for being a kind of a ladies man because women were attracted to me. I was a, you know, I was a good dancer. And we had lots of Friday night socials. I was social chairman. I got to meet other social chairmen. It was lots of fun. Every Friday night, 
After the party, most of the guys would pick up on women. What they did, I had no idea. But I knew that the relationship that I had with women ended that night. I feigned sleep. I feigned that I had to do some errands for my mother. And, and then I left the fraternity or closed it up sometimes. It was on 23rd and Lexington Avenue. And it was a really cold night. And it was a local stop, the 23rd and Lexington Avenue stop. And I walked down into the subway. Now, this is the 50s. So this is about 50 years ago. And the subway was deserted, totally deserted. There was a man in the booth and he was half asleep. And as I entered in the subway, I walked to the very end of the platform. And, and that's where I happened to notice there was a men's room. Now in the old days, that was the tea room. That was the meeting place. And I had suspected that there were shenanigans going on in there, but I absolutely had no intention of ever getting involved in doing that. It scared me. And then, and we had to wait a long time for the trains, this beautiful man came into the station, him and me, and there was an immediate chemistry and interest. He wore a pea coat and a sailor hat, and he was... He was a dreamboat. He was infinitely prettier and more attractive and got my heart racing than all those women that I was seducing on the dance floor at the fraternity that night. And he kind of walked into the men's room and looked behind him and brought me in. I was terrified, but I was more excited than terrified. Just the idea, and this was a first for me, of being, touching, feeling, looking, holding another man, able to express my long, pent-up sexual yearning, exploded. We went into a little corner of the John, and we hugged, and we held, and we caressed each other, and I started to breathe hard, and he was just, he was a dreamboat. I thought for a moment I was going to spend the rest of my life with this man. This was the man of my dreams. This was my Clark Gable and Cary Grant. And before we even got into anything sexual, the door was flung open and a number of people, including a policeman, came in. And we were wrestled to the ground and taken out of the bathroom subway police. I guess the man who I thought was sleeping at the change counter had alerted the police. And you know, I didn't know if it was entrapment, uh, but it was something that I felt was the most terrifying moment of my life. And as we were being dragged out of the bathroom, this beautiful man of my dreams started to cry. And I looked at him and, and recognized how much I hated him that my love turned to hate, my passion turned to hate. It was his fault, he was the one who entrapped me. And then they dragged me away and I peed in my pants. A few years ago, IMRU was co-sponsor of a storytelling competition at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center called Hear Me Out. The overall winner was David Park Epstein, and his story was called The Magic 
of the moon. It's 1966, three years before Stonewall, the magic of the moon, brought me Michael, my first love. We were just 16. I remember him first in the locker room of the gym. Michael's face was not what I first saw. I saw his back with the deep bruise in the shape of a lash. I knew that bruise. My father hit me, too, a belt to the back. Three years before Stonewall, I knew the shame beaten into us because of the secret we shared. We wanted to hold another boy and love him in our arms, a boy like us who would end our pain and heal our shame with his love. And so it would be for Michael and me. We fled to the sea to be free to love. Three years before Stonewall, when we were only 16. I remember our bed, our first night in the old gay hotel on Snake Alley in Atlantic City, one block from the Atlantic Ocean. We were only 16. Moonlight comes through the window, and I remember your arms, Michael. My hand moves down your belly toward the dream that lives between your legs. We were only 16, driving to the seashore from high school to the gay hotel that shows porn of blonde boys on a beach in California. And everyone is old but us. Old men, some naked, sit in the lobby smoking. And we're 16, fugitives from the world of parents, driven to the ocean by the tug in our bellies. And I can't wait to have him lying next to me. The desk clerk knows we're too young, gives us the room anyway. No driver's license asked to check our age. A double bed, a white cotton blanket, and Michael in his white cotton underpants, moonlight on his belly, my teenage hand trembles like the sea, pulled by the tide of his hard love, hard in his underpants. My fingers touch his belly in Atlantic City, a block off the boardwalk on forbidden Snake Alley, where everyone knows the queers go. We were sixteen fugitives from the law, hard dreams of love and freedom alive between our thighs. Life isn't a Hollywood movie, and love stories don't always have perfect endings. It was three years before Stonewall. Michael and me, we were just sixteen. We never got married. We never grew old side by side. Instead, 
I went away to college in Pennsylvania. Michael left town to join the army and disappeared into a military base in Texas. But our love and our freedom has never left me. Here I am, after all, telling you about us. After all these years, he's still alive inside me. And so is the gift he gave me in the moonlight. Now I put my hand on my heart, that place that knew only pain. It's healed. No bruise, no wound, no shame. Now there's magic and there's moonlight and the freedom to love. I'm David. Thanks for listening. We'll be back after this quick break. Don't go away. Roddy McDowell's Home Movies, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Released on YouTube in 2011, gay movie star Roddy McDowell's silent home movies are a movie lover's dream. McDowell loved getting together with his friends, so every Sunday afternoon he invited them over to his Malibu beach house for hot dogs and beer. They trusted McDowell and felt relaxed at his gatherings, even when he was filming. Almost every big Hollywood star and gay-friendly celebrity showed up. You can see stars including Judy Garland, Natalie Wood, and Jane Fonda. Paul Newman, Tony Perkins, and Sal Mineo are there wearing hot swimsuits. And sometimes Roddy is shown flirting with a variety of attractive men. McDowell has been a household name ever since he starred in the film How Green Was My Valley in 1941. He died in 1998 at age 70. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Paul Ivey. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. And now another story from Arnold Pomerantz. This one is called A Life. This year, in July, I'm going to be 69 years old. And sometimes looking at the people around me, I feel I'm as old as dirt. I was born in the Bronx, first generation. When my mother saw me and saw those curls, I was dubbed the Shirley Temple of the Bronx. And she never dissuaded people who thought I was a girl. Ma, how could you? I grew up with parents who argued a lot, who loved and cared about each other. And as early as I could remember, my mother used to pray that I would get married and give her grandchildren. So my early images were living in the suburbs, which was Long Island, if you lived in New York, with a white picket fence and having a wife. And then something happened. I started playing doctor in the apartment house that I lived in. When it was a rainy day, there were no video games. It was the 30s. And we'd peek at each other's parts, the guys and the gals. And I remembered the guys. It was very vividly. I could remember over 60 years ago Stanley Gross's butt in the back of the stairs and Cortona Parkway in the Bronx. And I didn't know anything about sex, obviously but I was attracted to him. 
and couldn't understand it. And I didn't even know what the word phase was, but that's probably what I thought. Arnold, it's a phase. And when I grew older, I saw that the way to get some kind of notoriety, the way to get acceptance, was to date the prettiest girls. And I know you look at me now, and I'm no hair and a gut, but I was a dude before the word even was invented. I was a dude. And I overcompensated for that feeling that I had that never went away, that I was attracted to men. But this was at a time when in my community where you could be a thief or even a murderer or a womanizer and somehow you were grudgingly respected by the people in the community. But to be, in Yiddish the word was fegala, to be a fairy was something that was just such an object of ridicule that I just never wanted to be a fairy. Although I'm sure that a lot of aspects of how I acted were probably like a fairy. I was certainly a confirmed sissy. I didn't play with the rough kids. I played with the nerdy kids. And long hair, you know, it was something that I learned to deal with. And then I'm dating and go to school and join a social fraternity and become the social chairman so I could get the pick of the prettiest gals and even attempted to be intimate with women. But the passion that I thought would be there wasn't really there for me. What was there was the feeling that my friends are going to be very impressed that I dated the prettiest gals. And then, I don't know what possessed me, on a lone weekend I went out to Fire Island which was a haven for gays. And for the first time, I went into a gay bar in a place called Cherry Grove from Fire Island. First time in my life in a gay bar. And I looked around, and I says, no, there are going to be no more sissies. I want another dude. I wanted somebody who was really masculine and virile. And there he was. And we lived together for 15 years. And like a, a real brave kid, I had to run away from home. I couldn't live with him in the city. I wasn't out to my parents. I wasn't even out to my friends. It was my secret. Now, it's the 50s, and there's a senator from Wisconsin, Joe McCarthy, who is just vicious with berating and downsizing and ostracizing all of his enemies by calling them gay. And so where do you go? you go to California. I ran away with my new lover, my mate, my significant other, call it what you will. We went to La La Land. We went to the land of fruits and nuts. And we settled in to LA and I got a job in the shoe business. And I loved doing that, but I was very, very closeted. I led, I think it was a show on called Herb Philbrick, who was a, you know, a double agent and that's how I felt. And I got away with it. I was good at it. I was good at lying. And I don't think anybody suspected. I dated women. I had my beards for all the social events that I needed, but I came home to my man. And then I got a job at Payless Shoe Source. You could pay more, but why? And I became the patron, the boss, the jefe. This was really it for me. I had 10,000 people working for me, 600 stores. In the meantime, I got a new significant other. We're going to be celebrating 22 years. So I'm into long-term relationships. And here we are in the corporate office. People call me boss or jefe or patron. And 
in the corporate office, our office here, everybody had pictures on their desks, all the people who worked for me, wives, husbands, kids. And my desk had the greatest collection of pictures of shoes because I had a man at home that I didn't have the courage to fight the system, to come out. And nobody was coming out at that time. And I didn't feel it was appropriate. I was so good at being deceptive. I guess I invented the closet and I loved being in it and didn't feel any kind of pang of conscience and wasn't even aware of activism around me. And then I guess it was God in her infinite wisdom struck me down. I got sick. I needed a liver transplant. And I was a B negative. I was a rare blood type. And fortunately, somebody on a weekend, weekends are great for donor contributions. Dr. Alan Hoffman harvested a B negative liver for me from a woman, a young, healthy woman who died on a weekend crash in Bakersfield, which was nearby. And it was interesting that when I was recovering in intensive care, I was told that only significant members of the family could visit. And I really had a lie to get my significant other in. And I think now I am such a activist for gay marriage, not because I want to get dressed in a wedding dress or to have a, a wedding cake with two male figures on it, but I want part of the 4,000 rights that married couples have that we have only a few of. Uh, I wasn't conscious of it then. I did ultimately get back to work, but I realized that I was deceptive, that I was truly living a lie, that I had a chance to be open and out and started coming out to my family. In fact, my parents now are long gone, so I had to write letters to my deceased parents to come out to them, although I thought my mom always really knew. Coming out to my niece and my sister, and they would say, oh, Uncle Arnold or Brother Dear, we, it's about time. We knew all the time. What a relief. And eventually I left work because in my early 60s, when I thought I would be revered and people would sit at my feet and appreciate my experience, forget about it. I was just outdated. It, I was Neanderthal. It was Jurassic Park. I was a, a dinosaur. And I went out in the world and I tried to recreate myself. I met a guru, Ma Jaya Sati Bhagavati, Joycey Green, the Jewish lady born in Brooklyn. And Ma, as she is known as, said, in order to reach God, you have to serve. And what I started to do was serve, serve the homeless, serve the dying, serve AIDS patients. And I was able to recreate my life. And then I joined Glide. Glide is an independent speakers group called Gays and Lesbians Initiating Dialogue for Equality. We're invited to schools, campuses, and colleges, uh, temples, churches, anybody who wants to speak about homophobia and the stereotypes of gays and lesbians. So here I was, a closeted fagula from the Bronx, and I overcompensated. I came out and became an old fart activist. I just love doing it. And each time I speak at schools and colleges and sometimes in front of a, what looks like a hostile kind of audience. When I was a kid, I would run from some of these guys. And there I am in their face introducing myself and telling them who I am, that I am gay, almost like an AA meeting. My name is Arnold, and I'm 69 years old, and I'm a homosexual. And I'm proud and fulfilled that I'm able to make up for 
what I kept in the closet so long. I'm not that good at Judaic law, but I know there's something called tikkun olem, and that is for Jews or for people everywhere to work toward repairing a healing world. That if you can open the light in one dark corner, if you can heal one wounded soul, it is if you heal the entire world. And that's what I am doing. Call me a Hindu or what. I'm out there and I'm doing it. And I am glad that at 69, I am looking forward to the next decade. Once upon a time, IMRU producer Steve Pride lived in Central Florida and was theme park royalty. But like most gay men, he was always chasing Peter. Only not like you'd imagine. Once upon a time, a long time ago, I fell in love with Peter, Peter Pan. Full of myself and fresh out of high school, I was working in a major Orlando theme park, a place where the rodents wore pants. Me? I was Snow White's prince and somewhat charming. It was an easy job that involved starry-eyed devotion to a pale, pasty-skinned girl in a severe black wig and being stalked daily by seven vertically challenged co-workers each one wearing a heavy costume topped by a huge fiberglass head, each head with blank eyes and a frozen smile, a precursor to West Hollywood happy hours that lay waiting in my future. The previous Peter Pan had been an androgynous lesbian whose adherence to the Stanislavski method acting approach to the portrayal of cartoon and two-dimensional characters had led to her odd conviction that with hope, faith, and just a little bit of pixie dust, she could fly. Perhaps she could, however apparently not from a second-story balcony at Pinocchio Village House. Luckily, the bodies of several small children broke her fall. Anyway, I was good at being the prince. I had the uncanny ability to always keep the part in my hair aimed directly into any oncoming breeze, thus consistently achieving a windswept look over the less desirable state of Mus. And being prince had its perks, including the occasional e-ticket and contemporary resort room key thrust into my innocent hand by a handsome tourist confused by our corporate ride policy, if perhaps not my own. On break, most of my co-workers peeled off their fiberglass character heads and rubber masks to reveal a sweaty, disheveled mess. No matter how attractive they may have been at the beginning of the day, with each hour they spent in the hot Florida sun, I looked better and better in comparison. What more could I want from life? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Oh, yum. So when the new Peter Pan emerged from character wardrobe, I lay in wait outside. At first glance, I knew he was the pixie for me. His little green polyester wash and wear tunic, his little green Peter hat at a rakish Peter angle, the stubby little rubber Peter Pan dagger he was brandishing in my direction. Do you believe in fairies? He inquired. Oh yeah, I replied. Oh yeah. 
And at that very moment, I knew what must be done and the sacrifice that I must make. Management was perplexed by the request, but still reeling from the ugly episode of the flying lesbian and incoming lawsuits, quickly granted my insane wish. The narrow rubber mask pinched my delicate face in painful, yet still unpleasant ways. The hook frightened small children, and the older ones delighted in punching me in unfortunate places. But as Captain Hook, I was near my Peter, and more than anything else, I wanted Peter. We met in Fantasyland. He pulled out his stubby little weapon, and I pulled out my long, long, long sword. And we battled past teacups into Tomorrowland. We fought our way across Main Street, past Liberty Square, through Frontierland, and found ourselves deep into Adventureland. Exhausted, we collapsed on the roof of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Behind a faux wall, bracing faux cannons, firing faux cannon shots. And in this private spot, he asked me again, Do you believe in fairies? Several hours later, our revelry was interrupted by a low-flying tour helicopter, but not before I truly believed I could fly, and that Never Never Land was a housing development somewhere south of Orlando. Unfortunately, my affair with Peter Pan did not last the summer. He quickly proved himself a jealous little minx, obsessed with my harmless friendships with Sleeping Beauty's Prince Philip, Mowgli, the Jungle Boy, and Bert from Mary Poppins. But no matter what he said, or what you may have heard from Tigger or Pooh, I was never caught by the Queen of Hearts doing something inappropriate in the entertainment shower room, especially not with that sweet little Christopher Robin. And if I was, well, it was entirely innocent. And Miss Queen of Hearts, I think some evil queens just take their role too seriously. We'll be back after this quick break. Don't go away. Roger McFarlane, gay rights pioneer, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Roger McFarlane is credited with setting up the first AIDS hotline in 1981, even before the disease had been named. Born in Mobile, Alabama and growing up on his family's farm, he later joined the Navy in 1974 and served as a nuclear reactor technician on board a submarine. He would then move to New York City and work as a respiratory therapist. It was there that he found his life's work. He told National Public Radio, Our friends and our lovers were not being cared for, and we had to learn how to get them what they needed. 
The first AIDS hotline was McFarland's home phone. By 1982, he was answering every call himself. This hotline became the anchor for gay men's health crisis. McFarland soon became its first director. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Stan Zimmerman, writer, producer, teacher, and director. And you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. One of the most allotted and prolific tellers of personal stories on this show was Peter Dell. This one was called Still Gay. She sleeps so peacefully. It is good to see the lines of worry leave her face, even if it is only while she sleeps. She really is beautiful. I know that intellectually, but I will never feel it in that deep down place. I know it will never work between us. I love her so much. She loves me. But I am gay. I met Christine when I was 15 years old. She was 21. We worked together in a movie theater, and after working together for a year and a half, Chris decided that she would go out with me. I had come out to myself six months earlier. Yet even with the knowledge that I wanted to have sex with men, I allowed myself to try going out with Chris. What was the harm in sleeping with a woman? Having sex with a woman, this is what adults did. This was normal. We are on the movie theater stage. The building is closed and no one is around. Just one horny 16-year-old gay male and a 21-year-old heterosexual female. She touches me, whispers to me, makes me feel so good, so attractive, so normal. I am swept away on a hormone tide, and before I know what has happened, I have passed that sacrosanct rite of manhood. I have lost my virginity to a woman. Sex with Chris wasn't about lust or getting off. Sex with Chris was synonymous with intimacy. Sex was a way to get close to her, to be bonded to her. It was an intimate moment that I could share with a person that I loved. And that person happened to be a woman. I am gay. What? I'm gay. We are both crying. I knew it was too good to be true, she says. I knew you were too nice. God, why didn't I see it? Of course you're gay. We have been going out for six weeks. I find the courage to tell her on this October night. 
I don't know what this is going to do to our relationship. You're gay. But let me just tell you, Peter. I love you. He told me sweet lies of sweet love. Heaven with a button of the truth. We both started a myth that night that we would sustain for the next two and a half years. The myth was that I could and would love Chris forever and the thoughts that I had towards men. I could keep those away because we loved each other. And God damn it, why can't I just be happy and normal with a girlfriend? Please, oh please, let me be anything. Let me be blind, let me be deaf, but please, don't let me be gay. A controversial co-host of IMRU in the 90s, who did only a couple of memorable features, Rita Gonzalez did one audio essay we can never forget, Bucky the Lesbian Rabbit. They say that apples don't fall far from the tree, but I never thought that statement would apply to a lesbian and her rabbit. When I first saw Bucky, he was confined in a tiny cage at a relative's home. Whenever I'd visit, I felt guilty, like an accessory to a crime. Cramped in his small quarters, he seemed so unhappy. On one particular visit, I could take it no longer. Don't you think we should find a new home for the rabbit? No one takes him out or pays any attention to him. And so I, Rita Gonzalez, naively took the rabbit in search of a better life. I made quite a few inquiries, but no one wanted a grown rabbit that was a bit too exuberant and at times not particularly friendly. Weeks passed into months and Bucky hopped around his little condominium I made him on my back patio, oblivious to my failing attempts to find him a new home. And then the strangest thing happened. I'll never forget that night. I awoke to the screams of my roommate. Rita, help! He's in bed with me! Get him out! A million things ran through my mind until I realized she was talking about the rabbit. I followed her voice and found my roommate now sprinting across the living room, flapping her arms. He's after me! Help! Help! And sure enough, Bucky was making a mad dash for her. I rounded the coffee table just as the rabbit hopped onto her leg and held on for dear life, his little body eagerly pushing to and fro against her bare calf. My roommate screamed and ran faster, trying to dislodge the creature by alternately running and kicking her leg out. The rabbit, intent on his course, looked happier than I'd ever seen him. My God, Rita, get him off of me! Easier said than done. First, I had to stop laughing. Then I had to catch the unlikely couple. That rabbit was on a mission. Finally, as my roommate slowed down, I managed to separate the two with considerable effort. I took him outside as he kicked and complained. It seemed he had escaped his condo and found his way through the doggy door. I returned to comfort my traumatized roommate. She explained, I woke up because I felt someone staring at me and there he was. Bucky was on my bed looking longingly in my eyes. Well, that night the rabbit spent hours throwing his body against his pin, trying to gain entry to the house and my roommate again. After that, whenever the rabbit saw her, he immediately became aroused. 
Between that and the fact that even the animal sanctuary people wouldn't take him unless he was neutered, I knew what I had to do. I found a low-cost clinic and set the date. That fateful morning, with my roommate's help, we seduced Bucky into a little car carrier. She simply put her bare leg against the bars on the other side, and he eagerly hopped in. Bucky and I made our way together to the clinic. I explained to the veterinary assistant that the rabbit needed to be neutered. With lightning speed, she grabbed Bucky by the scruff of his neck, totally neutralizing him. Wow, I wish I could grab him like that. I can barely catch him. Comes with plenty of practice, ma'am, she assured me and proceeded to take Bucky through the double doors into another room to examine him. She immediately came back into the room. Uh, miss, I hate to break it to you, but this is going to cost extra. I don't understand. What do you mean? Your rabbit. It's a female. It can't be. The pet store told my sister it was a male. She held Bucky up to quiet my protest. The proof was right there before my eyes. The vet assistant continued explaining the procedure in detail. I began to tune her out as a smile slowly stole across my face. Who would have guessed? All along, my little Bucky was really a lesbian. Coleman once covered religion for IMRU and contributed some commentary, but for one New Year's Eve show, he told the tale of his childhood as a sensitive boy, which producer Steve Pride combined with music from the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. growing up, and I'm talking about quite a long time ago, 60 years, New Year's Eve was a really big thing for me because it had to do with dressing up. My parents, like most people at the time, would always go to a New Year's Eve dinner and dance. They might go to a large hotel or to a private club, and I used to love seeing them get ready for the evening. Dad would make all of mum's clothes, and when it came to the dance dress for New Year's Eve, it was always a grand affair which he would design, always made of some lovely shiny material, silk, taffeta, something like that, loads of sequins in wonderful patterns and different colors, and he would dress up almost like a Christmas tree himself. And indeed, 
because people admired his work so much, he would be asked by many of the young women in the neighborhood to make their dance dresses too. He had to be very sure that he designed different-looking dresses because no two peoples could be anything like the same, especially if they were going to the same place. And after they left for their wonderful evening, I would be put to bed by my grandmother. But there were two New Year's Eves when I was also involved. The first was when I was six and I was taken to the Railway Institute. That was a particularly interesting one for me because I'd never been taken to anything quite like this before. And I harassed my dad for a drink because I had been brought up on alcohol, lots of beer. Gin was like mother's milk to me. And dad had already tanked himself up. So he ordered me a double rum. And I can still remember how I felt after that and complained to my grandmother as I waddled over the dance floor saying I felt sick. And she said, well, go outside and get some coffee. Never touch rum again till I was 18. The other big New Year's Eve was when I was 14. And I was taken to a very large hotel for New Year's Eve dinner and dance. And that was really nice. The first time I wore a tuxedo and had a bow tie, which went askew after I'd had a few drinks, and went even more askew after the cabaret, which was a French troupe, including a petite and very pretty striptease dancer, whom, as I was tanked up. I asked for a dance afterwards, and her husband said that would be fine. Under whose arms will hold you good in time When it's exactly twelve o'clock that night Welcoming in the I have to admit, I would rather have danced with him, but it was 1957. And when you're 14 years old, you know, there are some things you can do on New Year's Eve in front of a lot of people and some things you can't. But that was a really memorable New Year's Eve for me. There were a couple of boys from my school who were also at that, and they never thought to see me forward enough to dance with the striptease artist. So that, plus the fact that the end of year production at the school included a small play with lots of female parts, always popular in a boys' school, and I'd played Annie the Mad Maid. So those two things together made my last year at school extraordinarily a popular one for me, a, a role I'd never experienced before or since. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. That's public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder... We're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles, 
And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. I'm Michael Taylor Gray in Los Angeles. And you can catch me on Facebook and Instagram at Michael Taylor Gray. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R-G-R-A-Y. And on Twitter at M-I-K-E-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R-G-R-A-Y to see what I'm up to. Have a happy 2022. And we hope you've kept your New Year resolutions achievable. Mine, for instance, are the absolution of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy. So long, and thanks for listening. We close with a live session from a friend of Dorothy and a master of sax, Dave Cause, performing Over the Rainbow. <laughs>